Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, you could turn to the book of Malachi. We're beginning a series, a short series that will take us through the end of uh, January through the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, so if you're not too familiar with the Bible, you can find that Old Testament. Just go right to the end. If you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've gone a little bit too far. Just back up. I want to begin with a question for reflection Have you ever doubted if God really loved you? I know you know the the right answers about God's love, the right theology. You know what your parents and your preachers and Sunday school teachers have said. God loves you. You know that's what the Bible says, but when you think about everything going on in your life, or maybe not going on in your life, maybe it makes it really difficult to believe that it's true. If God loves me, you think he's got a funny way of showing it. If God loved me, why would he let me go through this? If God loves me, why doesn't he give me some kind of sign? Well, this question about the love of God is at the heart of everything gone wrong in the book of Malachi. And in our introductory look at the book here in Malachi chapter 1, There's a people out of touch with God's covenantal love. And when a people who are out of touch with God's covenantal love um, carry on day after day doubting that love, they'll begin to live as if that love doesn't really matter, doesn't really change anything, even as they carry on going through the religious motions. God's people have calibrated their faithfulness, their religion to the degree of their confidence in his love. And the result is disastrous. So the Lord sends a prophet to call them on their half-heartedness and call them back to the wholeheartedness of God. Let's begin reading Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say, The Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, How have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor, asks the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor, asks the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, 
and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food, is contemptible. You also say, look what a nuisance, and you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asked the Lord? The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we ask that you would bless the preaching of it. Father, give us the ears to hear, not just the, the burden of the law here, the burden of your holiness, but also the resounding uh, notes of grace that come as well as words of comfort. Pre prepare our hearts to hear all things that you would have us hear from this text. And it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Um, the book of Malachi is the final book in what's very often called the book of the 12 or the books of the, the so-called minor prophets. It's also, of course, the last book of the Old Testament, and it marks the end of God's prophetic word in the Old Covenant. It will be followed by centuries of silence until John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah to announce the arrival of the Messiah. The book is usually dated somewhere between 400 and 500 years before Jesus' birth. It's often placed at the same time as the events depicted in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Some of you have even speculated that Malachi, um, that the prophet Malachi is Ezra himself, actually. The name Malachi means messenger, literally a messenger <clears throat> like an angel. But don't think angel in terms of a, a spirit being, but as a, a messenger from God. And so because of this, some think Malachi is a title for this prophet, and thus we don't know his proper name. It's an, an anonymous book. But most um, scholars agree that Malachi is actually the man's name, and I tend to agree with that. I'm not convinced by the arguments for Malachi being simply a title. Malachi is prophesying to God's people after they've returned to Judah after the Babylonian captivity. They're under Persian rule, um, so they're, in a sense, occupied, um, but they're able to practice their religion in relative freedom. Um, the Persian rule is somewhat oppressive, especially in the forms of taxation, and as, um, also especially just in the forms of just the cultural dominance, right? The, the culture of the area is controlled by those who are in charge, and so the, uh, God's people are constantly kind of drifting into what we might call today and what was certainly then a kind of worldliness because of the dominant surrounding culture that does not fear uh, the one true God. So even though they have a rebuilt temple and they're practicing their religion in relative freedom, their devotion has become polluted by the cultural influence of the Persians and by their own moral and spiritual compromises. They're a lot like us today, I think. We enjoy the relative freedom of our religious practice, at least in the United States and in other Western 
nations, evangelicals do. But the Messiah has not yet set up his earthly rule to cast out rival worship and idolatry. And so we constantly face temptations. And we constantly give in to temptations to neglect pure worship, wholehearted worship to God because we don't pay him proper attention. And like the people of God in this book, we tend to treat our religion as a routine thing, as a custom, but not always as the center of our very lives. So in a way, as we read through this, we should think about the ways them is us. So the pronouncement, verse 1, comes from the prophet. And this pronouncement should be read in what is um, the Hebrew uh, root of this word. Some translations will say an oracle. This is an oracle. It carries the sense of a burden. Malachi is burdened by God to burden God's people with these charges. And the first burdensome word is this. The Lord's love provokes pure devotion. The Lord's love provokes pure devotion. If you're a note taker, this is the first point, so to speak. The Lord's love provokes pure devotion. Some people imagine obedience to God as a kind of payback for his goodness to them, which is really only a kind of legalism, trying to earn God's love. or The idea that we could pay back what has been paid to us is a kind of legalism. It pictures obedience as a response to the law. And obedience as a response to the law um, will always have um, an impurity in it. It's important to note the past tense declaration that God gives us, gives them, that begins verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. Walter Kaiser says this claim is the theme of the whole book. The Lord is saying, I'm not holding out on you. You have my love now. I have demonstrated my love for you in the past, and and my love doesn't change. I, I have shown you that I do actually, truly love you. Continuing in verse two, yet you ask, how have you loved us? We don't feel love now. What have you done for us lately? I don't feel the love of God. They're looking around and they're going, oh, you've loved us. Is that right? Why in the world would we believe that? And so the Lord points them first to their election by grace. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob. Verse 3, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. This is, of course, a a tricky passage. We should not read the words love and hate here as the kind of emotional vocabulary that we usually use about things we like or don't like. I love pizza. I hate broccoli, you know. I love my wife, but I hate that guy. You know, there's like the emotional... God's not like us. He he doesn't feel emotions like this. The emphasis is on the categorical contrast. The question being asked here is, to whom was God's covenantal favor given? 
Upon whom does God's covenant rest? So have in your mind with the names Jacob and Esau the nations that came from them, Israel and Edom, which the prophet will reference shortly in our our passage. God chose Israel. He put his love on Israel. The love here is a sovereign electing love. He said, I want Israel. They'll be my people. I'll create a people in them for me. And so the hate here is a sovereign rejection of evil, of of paganism, of idolatry, of rival philosophies, rival nations, rival worldlinesses to God's covenant people. So it's important to note that Jacob did nothing to earn God's love. God didn't look at Jacob and Esau and go, Jacob is going to be a good guy, so I'm going to put my love on him. Esau is going to be a bad guy, so I'm not going to love him. The Lord unilaterally, out of grace, placed his covenantal love on Jacob, on Israel. This is the Apostle Paul quoting from Malachi, at least in the beginning here, as he writes in Romans chapter 9. As it is written, I've loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not, Paul says. For he tells Moses, I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it doesn't depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. We see this unilateral, gracious love declared as early as Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, where we read, The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God did not choose Israel because Israel had anything to offer him. And he didn't choose you because you had anything to offer him. Those who oppose God, who oppose God's people, will be constantly and ultimately thwarted by God himself. Esau has he hated. As he goes on to point out that the enemies of God's people will not prosper in the end. Verse 4, though Edom says, this is the, the people's coming out from the line of Esau, though Edom says, we have been devastated, we'll rebuild. The Lord of armies says this, they may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, people of God. And you yourselves will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. Judgment is coming, God is saying. It is sure. If, like the people of God in Malachi's day, you look out at the world and wonder why the wicked seem to prosper... You ever wonder that? Seems like all the bad people get all the breaks. They get all the money, they get all the power, they get all the control. And the people that are just doing their best, humble, honest, they seem to get stepped on over and over and over again. The Lord is saying, don't despair. The wicked are only storing up judgment for themselves. The enemies of God and his people are headed for destruction. 
If you're a worshiper of God, you get to avoid this judgment. You might doubt his love now, but you will not doubt his love on the last day for sure. And if you believe that, it is cause for you not to doubt his love today. If you don't believe God loves you, your devotion to him will be half-hearted today, impure, reluctant, maybe even felt as coerced. But if you believe God loves you, his love provokes a pure devotion in you. Malachi is rebuking a people who have forgotten God's love. Their religion is driven by a kind of formality. This is just what we do. It's what we've always done. This is what good people do. This is what people who say they're Christians do. They maybe even have a distorted perception of God, even as they're going through the religious motions. Their religion is impure because it's predicated on an impure faith, a half-hearted devotion. They're looking for credit, for a pat on the back, something which is evidence that their devotion doesn't spring from the good news of God's love. And the irony in obeying out of a sense of earning God's approval is that we eventually realize we can't do enough, and so we end up not really caring. If we obey at all, it's purely out of religious obligation, not out of actual devotion, not out of a worshipful response to God's approval that's given to us freely in his love. We don't, we don't obey to give back to God. We obey because he's already given to us. When we doubt or forget the love of God, our religion becomes routine and impure. There's an older fellow at one of my previous churches that I had the honor to pastor, sweet man, um, relatively new Christian despite his um, old age. And uh, he worked around the town where the, the church was, so he would pop in quite a bit just to say hi and chat um, a lot with me. And um, he began to, um, he would pop in and just to drop in, in conversation that he had um, given some money to some people in the church that were in need. They were really struggling to pay their bills, that sort of thing. And he was letting me know he had, you know, helped them pay their bills. And I, um, I said, well, that's great. That's, that's really sweet. That's wonderful. It's very generous of you. And the next time he popped by, he was dropped in the conversation that he was helping somebody else, giving them some money and, you know, helping them along. And I said, man, that's fantastic. It's very sweet. It's very generous of you. I think that's great. Thanks for letting me know. After a while, this became a pattern. It seemed like every time we chatted, he was letting me know about something good he had done for someone, some money he'd given to somebody, some people that he was helping. And I be began to get concerned. And, you know, he's a sweet man. I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't thinking, oh, he's trying to parade his righteousness in front of me or anything like that. But it just, after a while, I began to get a little bit concerned about where his heart was in reporting to me every time he did something good for someone. So one day I finally just took him aside and as gently as I could, I said, brother, you don't need to tell me every time you give money to somebody. Remember that Jesus says, when you give with your left hand, don't let your right hand know what it's doing, right? There's no blessing that I can give you. There's no gold star that I can give you. There's no like pastoral in, you know, uh, gold seal. All right, you're a generous guy. Here's your, here's your credit. You know, you, you level up in the Christian life thanks to me. Um, I just said, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that 
you're doing these things. But if you do it, do it purely because God has blessed you. And, and you want to do it to honor him. And enjoy that honor and blessing even though nobody else even knows about it, including the pastor. Why do you think James, in his epistle, says that pure and undefiled religion is to look after widows and orphans? There's probably a number of reasons, but I suspect one of them is because widows and orphans don't have usually the currency to pay you back. They have nothing material to, to offer. They can offer their gratitude, but the reason you're giving to them is because they don't have what they need, and so they can't pay you back. You're not getting any kind of credit. There's no reciprocity, as it were, there. You don't look after widows and orphans to advance your own position, to exalt your own name. They're not able to give you that. And to give to others who cannot repay you actually resembles the pure devotion of God to sinners who can add nothing to him. He gives us his grace. He knows we have nothing to offer him. He needs nothing. He doesn't give to us going, all right, remember me. God's not needy. We give not to get applause, but because God is worthy of applause, which leads to the second burden of Malachi chapter 1. The Lord's name demands pure worship. The Lord's name demands pure worship. The Lord's ultimate concern in all things, not just in this passage, but through all the scriptures, throughout all of history, in your very life, the Lord's ultimate concern is for his own glory, that he would be seen as great. And so you see throughout the scriptures, but especially in the Old Testament, this repeated emphasis on his name. For my name's sake, he says. For my name. Do this in my name. One example I'll give you. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. My father David had his heart set on building a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. However, the Lord said to my father David, since it was your desire to build a temple for my name, you have done well to have this desire. Yet you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, your own offspring, will build the temple for my name. Three times in three verses. This is for my name. This is for my name. This is for my name. Roughly 100 times in the Old Testament, we see a reference to the phrase, his name. Telling God's people that nothing is worth doing if not done in the name of God. The root of this, of course, is the third commandment, not to take the Lord's name in vain, which is not just about profanity, though it is about that, but about not treating the reality of God, the, the glory of God, as if it's a trifling thing, making God look little. How we talk, how we think, how we live contributes to or diminishes God's reputation with those who are watching. It either magnifies or it diminishes a vision of his glory. God's reputation is demonstrated by the worship of his people. If our worship is half-hearted, if it's impure, we give the impression that he's not great. 
If we bring half-hearted worship and people look in, they go, I mean, maybe they love that God, I guess, but he can't be all that great. I mean, they're just kind of going through the motions. I used to watch on Sunday mornings in Nashville before we'd get ready to go to our own church. On television, there was a local church that broadcast. I won't tell you the name of the church. I'm sure a lot of it has changed. It's been 20-some years since this you know, broadcast was on the air, so I don't want to disparage. But the camera would pan around during the worship time, very traditional worship, which is fine. The camera would pan around the congregation while they would sing these songs. And I was just always struck by how like no one looked happy to be there. The place was full. I mean, it was packed out. It's not like people, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, were scarce in the place. But they had a big choir, and the camera would pan across the choir, and everyone just looked miserable as they're singing these songs. And then they pan to the congregation. And the congregation looks miserable as they're singing these songs. And I just thought to myself, and I know everyone's look. I my resting face. People think I'm angry all the time, and I promise you, I'm not. I'm not sad, I'm not mad, I'm not irritated. I mean, sometimes I am, but in general, <laughs> because I'm normal, but in general, I have an abnormal resting face. It's just how I look. So I understand that, but I just thought, what a terrible advertisement for worship of God if some unbeliever is like flipping through the stations on Sunday morning and comes across this church service and just thinks to themselves, what's this all about? You know, they're not going to darken the doorway of a church, but there's a camera now inside the church, and they can see what these people are all about, and they think, man, none of these people look happy to be there. They're singing all these songs about the greatness and the glory of God, and they don't seem like that, I mean, tell your face if God is glorious. Verse 6, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I am a father, this is God speaking through Malachi, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies, to you priests who despise my name. It's not just the people, the lay people, it's the the pastors from top to bottom and all across. This is very similar to Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Or, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Instead, their behavior is sullying the glory of God. He calls it a despising of his name, continuing in verse 6. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? And so he answers, by presenting defiled food on my altar. And so they say, how have we defiled you? (laughs) And he says, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? When you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with this? Would he show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. The Lord is saying that that every time we bring an, an impure worship into his presence, we show contempt for his table and in fact defile him and despise his name. Would the governor be pleased with that? The the idea is that even earthly authorities will not be satisfied with with half allegiance, half honor. So how much less should the holy God of heaven be satisfied with this? Now, we are certainly guilty of this when we enter the doors of the church 
with a half-hearted worship, when we sing songs out of ritual or worse, partake of the Lord's Supper without a clear profession of faith in God. But this is bigger than just what takes place in the so-called worship service. The sin expands to all of our life of half-hearted worship. We give lip service toward God, but we don't live like he's the true center of all things. We academically acknowledge the gospel, but we don't read or study or have our quiet times or prayer times as if we need God's word and the inclination of his ear to live. When you only think about God when it comes time to do religious stuff, your worship is impure. And his name demands so much more. The greatest command is what? That we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. But we only want to give him percentages. Only when we feel like it. And even then, not with much feeling. An impure worship God is saying, isn't worth bothering with at all. Lukewarm, I'll spit you out my mouth. It's worthless. I wish one of you, verse 10, would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. The Lord would rather we shut the door of our churches than bring him an impure worship. Every weekend, there are purported churches around the world where Christ is not preached. In TED Talk style, inspirational, moralistic pep talks. Where worship music is entertainment-driven silliness. Where people file in only to be amused or uplifted. And the reality of God lays lightly on the whole thing. If the reality of God is there at all. Shut those doors, God is saying. Lock them up. Write Ichabod, the glory has departed, over the doorframe. But before we offload the burden onto those churches, because their impure worship isn't ours, we should ask ourselves, isn't it? We might not offer God that kind of worship in this place, but we still stagger about our lives in the stupor of compromise, filling our minds with superficiality, filling our bellies with gluttony, filling our eyes with lust, filling our hearts with envy and greed and gossip and all kinds of self-righteousness. And then we show up here on Sunday to say, praise the name of the Lord, our God. Don't we do that? I do that. In Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, two sons of Aaron the priest, they present unauthorized fire on the altar of God, and the true fire of God consumes them dead. I would remind us all that when the children of Israel worshipped that golden calf in Exodus, I find this really remarkable. They didn't say, we're worshipping someone else now. They attributed their idolatry as worship to Yahweh. And you and I do the same thing when we spend the bulk of our lives indulging in our pleasures, our own causes, our own sins, and then we say, we're worshipers of God. 
The Lord's name is worth full-hearted worship, a pure and undiluted worship. The glory of his name demands it. How dare we offer him anything less than what he is due? But we do. Over and over again, we do. He gives us unconditional love, but we give him half-hearted interest. He gives us pure devotion, but we give him impure worship. And while his name is precious, the name above all names, we're more concerned with our name, our glory. It's a wonder he upholds relationship with us at all. But the covenant-keeping God is constantly dealing with covenant-breaking people, which leads to the third and final burden of this chapter. The Lord's grace produces pure sacrifice. The Lord's grace produces pure sacrifice. Pure devotion, pure worship, pure sacrifice. This is what God is worthy of. So the charge continues from Malachi. He continues to reveal their corruption. They bring imperfect sacrifices to honor God. Verse 12, you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance, and you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asked the Lord? The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies. My name will be feared among the nations. The sacrifices that they're offering are, are, are not the best. They're not pure sacrifices. They're not even according to the law they're offering these sacrifices. They're giving the, the worst, the stuff that they don't even want. Like us, we give what's comfortable, we give what's easy. What we give to God can very rarely even be called a sacrifice. Maybe inconvenience. Maybe it's uncomfortable, but sacrifice? Even, and let's be generous, even if we offered him our whole lives, would that sacrifice be pure? If you gave him your whole life, would it be a pure sacrifice? We are full of sin. There ain't a person in here who isn't in some way spiritually lame, blind, something. To use the text's language, we are defective animals. We don't even have a pure sacrifice to offer. Or do we? Verse 9, now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from our hands, will he show any of you favor, asked the Lord of armies? Will he? The answer is yes. Believe it or not, God's grace will produce the pure sacrifice. God has been and always will be the same, and he has always been committed to the spread of his glory, the renown of his own name. As he promises in verse 11, my name will be great among the nations. You are doing your best to sully it, but you are not so mighty as my glory. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. There will be pure religion. The Lord will ensure it. He is owed it. 
But if the nations are full of people with impure religion, if the churches are full of people with impure religion, how will this be the case? If only a pure sacrifice is worthy of him, how will we owe him the pure sacrifice ever be worthy of his name? The answer is that God will produce the pure sacrifice. The Lord's grace produces the pure sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. Our sacrifice, our sacrifices will be pure when they are covered in the sacrifice of Jesus. If we are faithless, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In his Malachi commentary, G. Campbell Morgan writes, Dispensations come and and go, dawn and vanish, but God remains the same, underneath, with, and in each. Some people speak as though God had not only altered his methods, but his mind. I agree that he has changed his methods, but his mind never. God did not begin to love man when Jesus came. Jesus came to roll back the curtain and show man the heart that was eternal, the love that was always there. Christianity is not God's alteration of attitude toward man. It's not that in the old dispensation he was a policeman, and in this dispensation a father. He has always been a father. He never changes. Dispensations and methods mark the change of man and the necessary change in the way of the divine hand is placed upon human life, but behind everything, God. God. What is the remedy then to impure religion? We turn to the glory of God. We turn to the glorious God who is love and who gives grace. And what a gracious God he is. What he demands from us, he supplies to us. Even the faith that we need to please him, he gives as a gift. It's as if he's saying, without faith, it's impossible to please me. Here, have some faith. What kind of God is this? We will always fall short of what's required of us. But in his grace, he covers us. He atones for us. He forgives us. He clothes us in his own holiness. He makes us pure. Our holy, righteous, and just God loves us, and the sacrifice of Christ is our redemption forever. The danger of impure religion is the judgment of God. That's the bad news. If you do not trust in Christ, you remain under this judgment. The wrath he speaks about is not just a circumstantial, historical, the things you try to do on earth will be destroyed. It means in the last day, everything you have built will crumble like a sandcastle, and you'll be cast into the outer darkness. That's the bad news. But the solution to impure religion is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. This is the good news. The blood of Jesus brings us the purity that we need. It won't come from anywhere else. How have you loved us? You love me? I'm looking at my bills. Don't feel a lot of love. I'm in the hospital waiting room. 
Don't feel a lot of love. My relationships are strained, if not broken. I don't feel a lot of love. How have you loved us? The Lord puts his fist under our chin and lifts us up and turns our head back to the cross of Calvary. As Tim Keller puts it, God looks at the anxious and says, I tore my son to shreds for you, and you're afraid I'll not give you what you need? The cross is proof that God has loved us, is loving us, and will love us forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your love through your son, Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help our hearts to receive this as good news. I thank you for every um, precious soul that has gathered on this New Year's Eve morning to hear from your word, to sing your praises, to be led in prayer. Father, I pray that you would bless them with strengthened faith. There are some in this room that they're hanging on by a thread. Comfort them, lift them up, give them the power they need by your spirit to trust in your goodness and in your grace. Father, for any soul in this room that has not passed from darkness into light, who has not turned themselves over to your son, I pray that you would shine in their heart to give them the knowledge of the glory of Christ Jesus, that he is good, that he is God, that he is saving and save them this very morning. And in all these things, we pray for the goodness of your name. And thank you, Lord, for loving us, even though we defile you with our sin every day. We thank you for your grace. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.